So our summer sermon series is on the letter to the Galatians, uh, written by the Apostle Paul, uh, written to uh, a cluster of churches uh, in the area that was referred to as Galatia. If you think modern-day Turkey, if you know where that is, you have an idea of where Galatia was. Uh, I invite you to uh, take a Bible. If you don't have one with you, uh, there are pew Bibles that you are welcome to use. Uh, the, if you're using one of the Pew Bibles, uh, the worship guide lists the exact page that the scripture passage begins on. We are going to take a look at Galatians chapter 2, verses 11 through 16. I think the worship guide may say that we're ending in verse 14, but I, I decided to extend it into verse 16. So Galatians chapter 2, verses 10, 11 through 16. So if you have not been with us, let me just give a little bit of a background that might be helpful to you as you jump into this with us. Um, There was a primary question that was driving Paul's writing of this letter, and that question was, on what basis are non-Jewish people, who are referred to as Gentiles, you'll you'll hear that uh, term in the passage, on what basis are non-Jewish people included in the family of God? On what basis are they included in the church? Paul, from the get-go, along with other apostles, uh, were proclaiming the gospel. And we would say that the central message of the gospel was grace. And what we mean by that is that the way that a person comes into right relationship with God is not based on deeds or performance or what the Bible sometimes refers to as works, but rather we come into right relationship with God through faith in how Jesus performed on our behalf. So in other words, we're saved, we're rescued from our sin, we're brought into relationship with God, our eternal destiny is made secure, not because of what we do, but because of what God has done for us in Christ. However, what began to happen was there was a group uh, in Galatia that began to go into the church. We're not clear whether or not they came from the outside or were from within, but they began to proclaim a contrary message. They did not discount faith in Jesus, but rather what they said was faith in Jesus is definitely important. It's part of the formula, but you must have faith in Jesus plus You must essentially become Jewish in the sense that you adopt Jewish customs, especially practices like circumcision, uh, dietary restrictions, and the observance of special days and feasts. Paul finds out about this, and so he writes to the Galatian church, to these young uh, followers of Jesus, these young Christians, to call them away from danger, to say that the formula is Jesus plus nothing else equals right relationship with God, equals favor with God. And so that's really the purpose of what Paul is doing here. In our passage this morning, we're going we're to take a look at both um, the personal and social, the vertical and horizontal dimensions of the gospel. Let me uh, read the text for us, beginning with verse 11. But when Cephas, who's also Peter, came to Antioch, I opposed him to his face because he stood condemned. For before certain men came from James, he was eating with the Gentiles. 
But when they came, he drew back and separated himself, fearing the circumcision party. And the rest of the Jews acted hypocritically along with him, so that even Barnabas was led astray by their hypocrisy. But when I saw that their conduct was not in step with the truth of the gospel, I said to Cephas before them all, if you, though a Jew, live like a Gentile and not like a Jew, how can you force the Gentile to live like Jews? We ourselves are Jews by birth and not Gentile sinners. Yet we know that a person is not justified by works of the law, but through faith in Christ, in Jesus Christ. So we also have believed in Christ Jesus in order to be justified by faith in Christ and not by works of the law, because by works of the law, no one will be justified. Let's pray. Holy Spirit, open the word to us. Open the biblical story to us that we might see the truth of the gospel and that by your help, we might bring our lives, our conduct in line with the truth of the gospel. We pray this in Jesus' name, amen. A few years ago, I found a nail deeply embedded in one of my car tires. Now, this actually wasn't the last time that this happened, but there's a particular reason that I want to talk about this time that it happened. Now, I'm no car expert, but I know enough uh, to realize that when you find a nail in your tire, it is not a good thing, right? You don't need to be a mechanic uh, to know that. To make matters worse, the nail was stuck in the inside track of my tire. Does this sound familiar to any of you yet? Have you had this experience? Which meant I pretty much needed to buy a new tire. There was no repairing the tire. There was, no, there was none of that. I needed to buy a new tire. In fact, there was significant wear on my other tire, so I actually needed to buy two new tires. But, unfor- but f- un- unfortunately, that wasn't all. That wasn't it. And I mean, a lot of things in life are like this, but especially cars. Somehow everything is interconnected, right? You have a problem over here, and it affects this thing over here that you thought was completely unrelated. Everything is connected. And so what I realized that w- was that what I thought I was dealing with was actually just uh, a symptom of a deeper underlying problem. Not only did I need to buy two new tires, I needed to have my tires realigned as well. You see, without the realignment, I would continue to have problems and possibly other uh, problems um, that would end up far more costly in the long run. Part of me wanted to pass on the alignment. You know how that goes, doesn't it? Whether it's a home repair, a car repair, it's like, oh, I don't want to fork over that money. I'm, uh, maybe I can just pass, and everything will work out for my good. Well, you're, that's dangerous. Um, so I sucked it up, and I paid for the realignment of my tires. Because if the tires aren't properly aligned, everything else gets out of whack. Well, we learn in Galatians 2, the passage that we are considering this morning, that the same holds true in the life of faith. A failure to embrace, to believe, to uh, bring our lives into uh, alignment with the truth of the gospel gets everything else in the life of faith out of whack. 
all right? And when we stop living in line with the truth of the gospel, we are entering into what we could say is dangerous territory. We are susceptible to danger of various sorts, and we're going to look at a particular danger this morning. And so the theme for us this morning is that we must bring everything into alignment with the truth of the gospel. And so what that means is that the Christian life, the life of faith, is basically a lifelong process of realignment. And what I want to do is I want to first talk about how we detect misalignment in the life of faith and then look at how, we, how the misalignment is corrected, how the realignment happens, all right? How do we detect the misalignment? Well, let's look at the misalignment in Peter's life as, we, as Paul uh, brings it to our attention here in Galatians 2. Some background. Um, going back to the Old Testament, Jews did not eat with Gentiles. Again, that term Gentile means non-Jewish. So going back to the Old Testament of the Bible, Jewish people did not eat with non-Jewish people. We've been talking about this idea of ceremonial law uh, throughout this Galatian series. And by ceremonial law, the ceremonial law of the Old Testament we are thinking of things like circumcision, dietary restrictions, the observance of special feasts or holidays, those sorts of things are what would make up ceremonial law. So the Jews did not eat with non-Jewish people because of the ceremonial law that was in place. But in Acts chapter 10, Peter, who, who is also referred to as Cephas here in Galatians 2, has a dramatic vision. He has a dramatic vision, and in this vision, he is shown that no one is made clean and acceptable in God's presence by their efforts, by what they eat or don't eat. He learns that it's Jesus alone that makes a person clean and fit for relationship with God. So Peter begins to eat with Gentiles, despite the criticism that he received from some Jewish people. But as we learn here, this uh, incident that Paul is talking about, something happened, something changed. Peter eventually drew back. He stopped eating with Gentiles. Um, we, it, it, Paul specifically says in verse 12, for before, for before certain men came from James, he was eating with the Gentiles, but when they came, he drew back and separated himself, fearing the circumcision party. So what does Paul do? Paul calls him out to his face. He says in verse 11, I opposed him to his face. And Paul is, uh, he, he's been really strong and direct in this letter. Uh, if you remember uh, chapter one, um, he had some really strong words um, for those who would proclaim a gospel um, that is not in alignment with the gospel that the apostles proclaimed. And he continues it here in chapter 2. Paul continues to be all worked up about guarding and protecting the purity, the essence of the good news of Jesus. Why? Well, ultimately, Peter was acting like a hypocrite. We all say that, for the most part, that we don't like hypocrites, but we all are hypocrites at some time 
or another. But Peter is acting like a hypocrite in this incident. Here's why. Because he himself at this point in his life was not fully following all of the ceremonial law any longer once he became a Christian and embraced the gospel of grace. And yet now in this particular way, by drawing back from table fellowship with those who are different from him, the non-Jewish people, he is showing, displaying his deep hypocrisy. He was forcing them to adopt some of the very customs that he no longer himself was even following. But more importantly, more importantly than the issue of hypocrisy, Paul viewed this as a threat to the gospel of justification by faith. Now, that's a, that's a big word that I just used, justification, but it's an important word, and we need to uh, be clear on it because the word justification, justified, um, some um, use of that word is going to show up quite a bit, especially in the next chapter of Galatians. So we, we need to know what we're talking about. To be justified is to be declared right, or to use a specific biblical language, it's to be declared righteous. It's to be declared acceptable, to be declared okay with God. And let me give you this context. This is actually something that each and every one, one of us wants deep, deep down inside. We want to be told that we are right, that we are good, that we are okay. Why is it that um, we will go to great lengths to defend ourselves? Sometimes even when we're wrong. It's been a while since I used this illustration, but it seems fitting. I've talked uh, at different times about sometimes in my marriage to Katie, there um, are times when we're in a disagreement. And somewhere along the line in the disagreement, I realize that I am wrong. But guess what? I keep going. I keep arguing my point because I do not want to admit that I am wrong. I want to be right. And for, it to, for me to be exposed in that way, for it to be out in the open that I am wrong about something, even if it is insignificant, it makes me feel vulnerable. It's really weird, isn't it? It's strange, but this is the human condition. We all know what this is like. We long to be declared right and okay. We want people to tell us, you are in, you are good, you are right. The gospel speaks to that. This is why the gospel, by gospel, I mean the good news of Jesus Christ. The good news about his life, his death, his resurrection, him coming to us so that we might be justified. This is incredibly relevant. It is the most relevant thing in life because it speaks to the human condition. It speaks to what we all want, whether we know it or not. And Paul views this incident with Peter, Peter's hypocrisy, him backing away from table fellowship with people who are different from him, as a threat to the gospel of justification by faith alone. Why? Well, as we've already heard from Paul throughout this letter, justification, that act of being declared right by God, happens not on the basis of what we contribute, not on the basis of how we perform, but on the basis of what Jesus has done for us. 
And Paul is really taking this back to what chapter one was all about, his concern, that for Peter to step away from table fellowship with the Gentiles and to basically imply and communicate, I can't be in relationship with you, I can't eat with you. And keep in mind, the first century, table fellowship was the, um, the most powerful sign of intimacy and friendship. So for Paul to have begun to, to do that with Gentiles was powerful, and for him to now back away from that also had a powerful message that was being displayed. But Paul's point is that for Peter to do that, he is therefore implying that actually Gentiles must adopt Jewish customs, and therefore to be really right with God, to be justified, it's not only just faith in Jesus, but it's also performing. It's adopting these customs. And so Paul is all worked up because he views this as a threat to the gospel of justification by faith alone, the message that must be kept pure because it's the only thing that can rescue humanity from its condition. Peter's sin was basically a form of racism because what it communicated was that Christians can't really be acceptable to God unless you become Jewish, unless you adopt our cultural customs, unless you become like people of our ethnicity or race. But I want you to see, I want you to realize something. Paul, in chapter one and even into the beginning of chapter two, has been arguing against legalism or moralism. Um, I, I've defined this the last two weeks. Um, Morality is good, right? Morality is beautiful. We want morality. Moralism is bad. Legalism, so morality is good. Law is good. Um, God's law points us to what true and beautiful morality is. Moralism and legalism are bad because moralism and legalism are approach to morality and the law that say, in order to find favor with God, in order to be justified you have to live up to the standards of the law of the moral, uh, or the morality. And we can't do that. We can't do it. We fall, we collapse under the weight of that. We need a rescuer. And so for Paul, what Peter's doing here, his racism inevitably, is actually a form of legalism. It's a form of moralism. Because racism here, or his cultural superiority, is actually just the presenting issue. I want to talk about this, because I think that this is really important, and this has important implications for us. If I say that racism, Paul's cultural, his sense of cultural superiority over others, was just simply the presenting issue, what was the underlying issue? Look at verse 12. fearing the circumcision party. That last phrase of verse 12. Peter feared the circumcision party. In other words, Peter feared people. He feared not having the approval of others. Fear of not having approval is what was driving Peter's behavior. He was looking for the approval of others. He wanted others to give him a sense of validation, a sense of justification. He wanted the sense that he was right, that he was good, that he was okay, that he was right in life based on others accepting him. And so as he began to do what was right, that which was in alignment with the truth of the gospel, which was to actually eat 
and associate and have fellowship with non-Jewish people, by walking away from that, as we saw, he proved to be a hypocrite. But the reason he did it is because he did not actually really, in practice, believe the truth of the gospel, which is what? That his approval is safe. It's secure. He already has the favor that he needs from God because of what Jesus has done for him. And that has implications for how we relate to others. You see, what Paul is getting into here is this idea that the gospel has both personal and social dimensions. It has both vertical and horizontal dimensions. Now, this could be really frustrating because some would hear this and say, yeah, I don't know. I, I think we just proclaim the gospel and everything else takes care of itself. We shouldn't apply the gospel to social issues. Paul is applying the gospel to social issues. In large part, it's not the only thing going on in here in Galatians, but in large part, that's what's going on here in Galatians. He is applying the gospel to social issues. He's saying, you must bring your conduct socially, Peter, into alignment with the truth of the gospel. The gospel is both personal and social. And what I mean is that, first and foremost, the gospel focuses on our salvation before God, our need for rescue, as we've talked about. That we are sinners, and we are separated from God as a result. And we cannot fix that condition ourselves. God, in his grace and mercy, sent Jesus as our rescuer, and it's through what Jesus did in his life, death, and resurrection, that we, and our, our faith in that, that we find favor with God, that we become daughters and sons of our Father in heaven. But God also, his plan is for him to have a family. And this actually is not new in a certain sense in the New Testament. It's new in that it's being materialized, it's being fully implemented, but God's plan from the very beginning was to start with the Jewish people, but from them to eventually have a people that are made up of, from every nation, tribe, and tongue. And his heart in that was that for people with diverse stories and backgrounds to ultimately come together under the identity and name of Jesus and be a unified witness to the world so that the world would look in and say, the gospel must be true. Jesus must be real because look at these people from a diversity of backgrounds actually coming together as one. It's what Peter or Paul, as we said last week, calls the mystery of the gospel in the letter to the Ephesians. What is the mystery of the gospel that Paul unpacks in Ephesians? It's Jew and Gentile together in the same fellowship. It's Jew and Gentile together in God's family. This is the scope of the biblical story. This is God's purpose from beginning to end uh, on the pages of Scripture. Manny Ortiz, or Manuel Ortiz, was a longtime uh, professor at Westminster Seminary and pastor in Philadelphia. He passed away a couple years ago. He had a significant impact and influence on me, uh, both in college and seminary, as I was thinking through how to apply um, the truth of the gospel to urban-type issues. Manny Ortiz wrote this at one point, because the Lord has broken down the barriers that separate us, 
The church is to flesh out the gospel of reconciliation both vertically and horizontally. It wants to see people come to saving knowledge of the Lord Jesus Christ and grow in relationship to others, breaking down the hostilities that once separated them. Justice and justification are two very important biblical themes in the church's ministry. In other words, think about it this way. Because we are justified freely by the grace of God through faith in Jesus, we must treat those around us justly. And that is ultimately Paul's critique, his rebuke of Peter. It's not just simply that Peter is making a mis- an accidental mistake. It's not that um, Peter has his spiritual life in order. Or he just needs to figure out something socially. No, his spiritual life is out of order in this instance. Because Peter is not actually really believing the gospel of grace. If he really was believing the gospel of grace he would say, you know what? I know I'm being rebuked by this, the, the, this Jewish group over here. I know that I'm, I, I don't have their approval, but that's okay because the truth of the gospel is the guiding priority for life. It's what, most matter, what matters most. And I have favor, acceptance, and approval with God, so I ultimately don't need to fear people and crave their approval. We detect the misalignment in our own lives by identifying what it is we're looking to for validation and rightness in life. To do this, we we have to go below the surface to draw out the deeper underlying issues. We can't just analyze the behavior. Now, if you've gone through um, the Intro to City Church class, you know that we do this exercise where um, we, uh, I forget what what we call it, been a few months since I taught the class last. But the idea is that we begin with the surface sin. That's the presenting behavior in our lives. And, and let's just, I think the example that I usually use in the class is that of lying. So let's say you identify that you've really been lying a lot in life recently. What we too often do is we kind of remain on that surface level and we say, yeah, I know that God doesn't really, he doesn't approve of lying, he doesn't want me to lie. I need to work on that. I need to change that. So you know what? Starting tomorrow, I'm going to stop lying so much. That might work temporarily, but you actually have not addressed the issue. We have to go below the surface. We have to repent, to repent, to turn away from our root sin and embrace the gospel. And when we do that, we have to ask the question, it's scary, why am I lying so much right now in my life? Why am I so angry right now? Why am I uh, being racist right now in life? We have to go below the surface and ask the why question. And when it comes to the example of lying, you start to maybe come up with some answers that threaten your well-being, that make you uncomfortable. Wow, I'm lying because I approve, I I crave the approval of others, or I'm afraid of being found out or all of these other things. And once you go below the surface, you forget that you're even thinking about lying anymore because you've gone deep now into the rabbit hole. And it's deep into the rabbit hole where we need to actually practice repentance because it's it's when and where real transformation takes place. And we're going to see how Paul does this with, with Peter. So let's 
let's look at how to correct the misalignment with Paul's help here and how he approaches Peter. In verse 14, Paul says, When I saw that their conduct was not in step with the truth of the gospel. So we, we begin there first of all. The gospel is our standard. The gospel is our guiding priority. Personally, individually, as followers of Jesus, for us as a church, the gospel is central to everything that we do, and it's central to how we think. The gospel is truth. And what Paul's saying is that when we're out of whack in the life of faith, we are somehow misaligned with the truth of the gospel. And the truth of the gospel is it's powerful. It's um, broad. It's significant. Because on the one hand, we might say this idea of justification by faith alone, of how we're declared right on the basis of our faith and what Jesus has done for us, it might sound so simple or even simplistic, but it has profound implications for all of life. And that's the beauty of the New Testament. It's the beauty of Paul's letters, that he spends great time detailing, unpacking the implications of this simple yet complex gospel in terms of how it relates to every area of life. Now, the word that Paul uses here for um, being out of, their, their conduct being out of step with the gospel is orthopedo, orthopedo. The only reason that I bring this up is because you've heard the word ortho before, right? You've heard the word ortho. Think about orthodontics. Orthodontics have to do with what? Straight teeth. Orthopedo means straight walking. So Paul is saying that Peter was not walking uh, straight with the gospel. He was out of whack with the gospel. He was misaligned. The gospel is a truth. It's a message something to be proclaimed, as we saw, but it's also a reality of which we are to bring our lives into alignment with. But notice where Peter or Paul goes from there. And this is why I wanted to include verses 15 and 16, because it's clear that Paul is still speaking to Peter in some way, shape, or form here, because he says, we ourselves are Jews. He's writing this letter to Gentiles, to the Galatians, but here he's saying that he, we ourselves are Jews. So he's still talking about his conversation, whether he's quoting it um, exact or not, doesn't necessarily matter. But he says, we ourselves are Jews by birth and not Gentile sinners. Yet we know that a person is not justified by works of the law, but through faith in Jesus Christ. And then I love it because he goes on from there to basically say the same thing three more times in different ways. He wants to get his point across. Notice what Paul doesn't say. He doesn't say to Peter, Peter, you know that racism is wrong. You know that, that feeling morally superior to somebody else because of your culture is wrong. It's a violation of how God wants you to live. Don't do that anymore. Stop being racist. That's not how Paul comes at Peter. It's not how he seeks to uh, correct the misalignment. Paul would not have actually addressed the issue ultimately if that was how he approached it. He would have only have dealt with the surface sin. He would have only have dealt with the behavior, the presenting issue. Put it, Paul could have taken that, that route, right? He could have done that only for Peter to say, you know what, Paul, 
you actually are right. I'm so embarrassed right now. I can't believe I did this. I am not going to do this again. Won't happen again, I promise. No gospel transformation, if that's how this situation would have ended. But Paul is, on the one hand, his strong language in this letter might intimidate us. It definitely, I think, is strange for us in our culture. We don't like to um, come across as um, no, having it all figured out. Um, there's humility in that, but there are times when the truth needs to be spoken. And so Paul is bold here. He's blunt here. And he comes at Peter to his face because Peter's sin is public. Paul's rebuke of Peter is also public. And so what does Paul do? Paul desires for there to be gospel transformation. He desires not just to rebuke Peter to make an example of him, but he desires for Peter to actually be changed so that Peter actually will be able to relate to people who are different with him with gospel power and beauty so that many might be changed by the gospel, and so many might become into God's family. There might be a diverse expression of God's family that testifies to the credibility of Jesus and his good news. I could have passed on the tire realignment. I could have passed on it, but what would have eventually happened was things would have gone really out of whack. Things would have gone really bad. All kinds of new issues would have surfaced with my car. That would not have been wise. It may have been unnoticed for a time, but it would have crept back up in a variety of ways. It's the same here when we're talking about the life of faith. Paul goes after the deeper underlying issue. He recognizes that for Peter in this moment or these moments, that he's not experiencing God's love. He's not really tangibly experiencing God's favor and acceptance of him in Christ. He's feeling insecure. He feels like he has to contribute to his justification. He has to, he has to actually do something. And so he tries to make himself feel superior by looking down on someone else because of their race or culture. And so Paul beautifully proclaims the gospel to him. He reminds him of justification by faith alone. There is no longer, Peter basically says, there's no longer any need for you to try to validate yourself or declare yourself to be right based on what you do or how you feel better than others. Rest in what Christ has done for you. Because not only is your security with God then secure, but also you then are empowered to love those who are different from you, to relate to those who are different from you, to treat them justly, and to ultimately welcome them into God's family as well as you proclaim and live out justification by faith alone. Mark Gornick um, is, uh, I'm not sure what he's doing now. Last I heard, he had founded a seminary in New York City, but Back in the late 80s, I believe it was, um, he, along with some others, um, started New Song Community Church and um, Community Ministries in West Baltimore. Uh, this church still exists today. It's a part of our denomination doing holistic ministry in inner city Baltimore. But Mark Gornick writes this in one of his books. The message of the gospel involves not only 
the dismantling of false markers, but also the construction of a new identity, community, and world based on God's work in Christ. God's free justification is subversive to exclusion and constructive to life. I love that. The gospel of justification by faith alone dismantles false markers that we create. All of these markers that we create to make ourselves feel better, to feel uh, culturally superior than others because we need validation. But when we really begin to believe justification by faith alone, when we really begin to live in it, to bring our lives more fully into, co- into uh, alignment with its truth, false markers are dismantled. The standard becomes the truth of the gospel, and we are enabled to invite people to respond to the gospel, and we're enabled to be a diverse family of people made up of every nation, tribe, and tongue as a provocative witness to the world. Now, where are you in all of this? And I want to, as I wrap up, just speak to maybe a certain... Um, few of you, a group of you, I don't know. Maybe you're really feeling the weight of this. Maybe you feel convicted of your sin in this area. That you realize because you actually are not at home with the truth of the gospel, because you're not actually at home with grace, you're still trying to validate yourself, still trying to create your own worth apart from Jesus. And as a result of that, maybe you do find yourself in life looking at others in racist ways, looking down on others um, from a place of cultural superiority. And maybe you're feeling the weight of that and the guilt of that in this moment. I want to encourage you. There's forgiveness. There's forgiveness. Receive God's forgiveness through Christ. You can be changed at a deep level. You can be transformed to actually embrace the gospel, to receive God's love in a way that you never have before and therefore relate to others in the way that God intends. There's hope. There's forgiveness. We're inconsistent. None of us have arrived fully in this area. But the beautiful thing is this, the opportunity that God gives us to figure it out together in life in community. And I want to close by saying this, that a few weeks ago I shared, um, it was the week before uh, the elders were going to have a prayer retreat together, that one of the themes that you could pray for us about was this particular theme that we as elders were going to be praying about, um, the, the, the sense that we want to see our church family become more racially and culturally diverse so that we might be a reflection Uh, to our city of the God of grace, that they might believe the gospel is credible by our witness. And uh, just to update you, uh, that wasn't the only thing we prayed about, but we definitely spent time in prayer, um, in conversation about that in particular, and I was really encouraged and blessed by that. Um, You're going to hear more about that and other things in the coming weeks and months, uh, especially as we head into the beginning of next year, uh, we'll be celebrating our 10th year uh, as a church family together. 
Um, so you're going to be hearing a lot in the coming weeks and months about vision for the future and all of that. But I was really encouraged and blessed by the elders. And not only the day of the prayer retreat, but since then, some of their encouragement, some of their challenge, even to me, on this issue, holding me accountable to it, that it can't just be something that we talk about. It has to be something that we act out on. And so I want to invite you to continue to pray for the elders, myself, but for, for you as well, for our congregation, because this is something that God can do. And what I want to point out to you, that we don't desire this because it might be currently cool or something that's talked about in our culture. We don't want to do anything as a church for that reason. We want to do this. We want to pursue this because it's a biblical vision. It's a biblical vision. And it's at the heart of, really, I think, our ability as a church in this city in particular to have a really credible and powerful witness so that people might come to know Jesus. And so I want to invite you more deeply to keep praying uh, about this, that God would break down the barriers of hostility, as Bethany read in the um, Assurance of Forgiveness, that he would break down the barriers of hostility, that he would create one new humanity united in Jesus for the sake of the gospel and for the life of our city. Let's pray. Jesus, I sense that you are doing something, at least in my heart, in this particular area. You are enlarging my view of Scripture, helping me to see what you intend for your people. Uh, and I know that you're doing that in the hearts of many others in our church family. I, I, I pray that you would provide the help, the grace, the strength, the vision that we need to pursue this biblical vision of yours. I know that my desire, the longing of my heart, is for people to come to know Jesus. And in your word, you tell us that you desire for the church, for your family, for the unity that is seen there, that might be visible to others. You desire for that to be a powerful way that people actually believe the gospel is true. Our city needs to see that kind of fellowship and community. Our world needs that because our world is so marked by hostility and division and hatred. Please, Lord, do this in our midst for your glory and for our good. We look forward to how we are going to understand the gospel and experience the gospel in ways that we never thought were imaginable as you work in this way. Work on our hearts, we pray. I pray that we would taste and experience and learn more of the, of the gospel of grace, justification by faith. And I pray that you would give us the help to bring our lives into alignment with its truth. We pray in Jesus' name, amen.